Good day and welcome to the Frontline Chatter Podcast. My name is Jarian Gibson with uh, co-host Andrew Morgan. And how are you doing today, Andrew? I'm doing really good. It feels like we haven't done this in a while. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It actually feels a bit strange. I feel nervous for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe that's because I've got a very good friend of ours on uh, on uh, on this podcast tonight. Uh, and how about you, Jarian? Doing pretty good. Yeah, it, it has been a while. Um, glad to see we're getting back onto this and uh, talking with our guest today, uh, Mr. Reverse Engineer, um, the developing decompiler, community guy, CTP, um, works at Atlantis today. Um, and without further ado, we have Remco Winan. Thank you. Um, little bit nervous myself. Um, not talking purely tech, but more about myself. So I'm very happy that you guys are a bit nervous as well, so I'm not the only one here. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so I mean, Remco and I go go way back. We, we've been friends for, for years now, and um, it's uh, I've always found Remco a fascinating guy. Um, he comes out with some of the strangest solutions to problems uh, known to man. Uh, we've done some 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 work together from from you know from a, from business point of view. We own a business together, you know. So um, yeah, no, I'm very excited to have you on, Remco, and uh, I hope the 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 guy the the, the listeners um, enjoy your story as much as I did when you first told it to me. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to jump in. So you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, obviously, you started your life as a field engineer. You're now working as a developer and storage architect with Atlantis Computing. How did you get started in IT? What what brought you from 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 where you started all the way up? So I guess like many people of my generation, I I first started computer area with playing games. Um, so as many people, um, I started with the Commodore 64. And as many people did, I started with cheating. So I wanted to play games and have more lives, uh, die uh, rather slower than faster. Um, so that really got me hooked into things like, uh, you know, looking at how programs work um, and the technology behind it. I'll never forget my Commodore 64 for as long as I live. Um, I my my dad's uh, my first one was a Commodore Plus four, and I got a 64 uh, a couple of years later. And we used to get this magazine every month from uh, my dad used to bring it home. And there was there used to be a, a particular part of it, the magazine that you'd have to sit down. You'd you'd write your own basic program, and the magazine would have the entire basic program there. And the, I'd get it on the Friday, and I'd. I'd I'd click away until Saturday or Sunday and the program would work and I'd show, I'd show my parents that it was working. But I remember this one time, um, the, I could not get this application to work. And uh, I tried everything. I, you know, I checked with my dad. He made phone calls. His program would just not work. And we had to wait until the next month. And it turns out there was a typo <laughs> in the book. So there was me pulling my hair out for a month. And lo and behold, there was a typo. However, so yeah, so you started off in your 64. And where did that take you? So uh, interestingly, to, to your story, um, uh, in the Netherlands, there used to be a radio program uh, where they would broadcast uh, a computer program. So you could actually put a cassette in your tape deck and record the entire broadcast, which would maybe last for like 45 minutes. And then if your sister didn't walk in and, uh, and ask you something, uh, you would have a perfectly fine program that you could run. So... There were two things that could ruin your basic program. That's a typo and your sister. 
Yeah, I, I still have very fond memories of my dad trying to copy stuff with, with two audio cassettes, play, or, you know, one playing and one recording and trying to copy it across before the recorders became readily available. So yeah, that, that's fascinating. <laughs> and your sister used to wreck it for you. <laughs> very good. <laughs> yeah, so, so one of my first programming uh, achievements was actually trying to lock my sister out of the, of the home computer. So on, uh, on Windows machines, we are, are used to control delete. In the uh, Commodore 64, it, it was Commodore Restore or something like that. And you could actually put in a poke, uh, I think it was poke 808,234 to block um, you from restoring a running program or breaking it rather. Uh, so I, I, that's one of the first thing I did to, to lock my sister out and, and own the home computer to play my own games instead of hers. Very good, very good. Uh, tell me this, and it's a Commodore 64, that classic question. Were you a cassette or were you a um, cartridge person? So cassette, I didn't have the money for cartridges, and floppy drive came, came only way later on. Yeah, I remember that. I I, I I had one cartridge, and on the cartridge was uh, Flimbo's Quest and three other games, and I played Flimbo's Quest to uh, to death. Uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a great old game. Great old game. So Commodore 64 took you where, buddy? So, it, it, as I mentioned, it started with games, right? So, uh, one of the tricks you could do with the Commodore was that there was a specific cartridge where you could um, interrupt the game, and then you could search all memory addresses. So, imagine that you had five lives in a game. You would search all the memory addresses for uh, registers that hold the number five. Then you continue the game. Um, you die. Then you have four lives. And you search all the addresses that were previously five and were now four. And if you repeat this a number of times, ultimately one address uh, remains. And you change this to, I don't know, 25 or FF for 255. And you've cracked the game. Very nice, very nice. It's kind of like a modern day red shot of, of active memory on the Commodore. <laughs> So looking back, maybe that was the, the first attempt at, at reverse engineering. Um, but uh, I, I still have good memories about it. Very good. Okay, so Commodore took you up to other consoles, I assume. Yeah, I, I basically went with the Commodore range. So from the Commodore 64, I went to the Amiga, which was fabulous for its graphics uh, at the time. Uh, stick with that a very long time uh, until ultimately uh, the concept died and, and a switch to Windows and PC um, was required. And, you know, started programming Turbo Pascal at the time um, in education as it was a language uh, commonly used, uh, as it was a language thought to be uh, very good for, um, you know, learning to program opposed to basic which was considered as being bad for programmers very good i mean it's funny you should say that i i i i'm out of college about 14 15 years now but i still remember learning basic in college i have no idea why they taught us that along with cobol and a couple of other things but yeah basic was uh go to do this do that then go to this and then back out again you know it was it was an interesting language to say the least so how did, how did the how did the how did the games and the consoles bring you over to, to working in it in your in your full-time job so when I was young, I thought I, I would like to be a games programmer. Um, thinking obviously I would design these these you know cool games all by myself. So graphics, music, game logic. Um, uh, fairly quick, I realized that I was very bad at the creative part. So I was not good in music. I was not good in graphics. 
Um, so ultimately, the thing that remained would be to program games. Um, did learn that you know it's fun to program. I still enjoy that a lot, but it's less fun to program uh, something you are requested to create rather than this cool idea you have that you want to create. So rather than programming games, my first job was as a field engineer, uh, where I was responsible for programming telephone exchanges. Um, so at the time in the Netherlands, there was a, a number scheme change, uh, which meant that every private business that had their own private telephone exchange uh, needed reprogramming. I started this as a summer job, sort of liked it because I got a laptop, um, could hobby in my own time and drove my car around the country um, to program telephone exchanges. And at one of those customers, I, I first saw um, terminal server and games technology. Um, thought that was, you know, something very cool because they used DOS machines to access Windows. And I was like, wow, what, what's this? This this is superb. This is great. Um, so yeah, that, that got me hooked into, into that area of technology. And finally um, ended me up in working for um, the company that you know first showed me this technology. Very good. So I went from a summer job to, to, to moving on and then you know through, through, your, through your history you've had, a, you've had quite a number of jobs but you, you did land in the end user computing space. Um, so how, how, did you, how did you make the leap from, from phones to, uh, to server-based computing? Well, it didn't happen intentionally, but you know, uh, computing was a very uh, different story from telephony at that time. Uh, but the two sort of merged together. Um, so think of call centers, uh, you know, the annoying guys that phone you in the evening if you want a subscription to a newspaper or something. Um, the, um, one of my jobs at the time was creating uh, the scripts and technology behind it. Um, so that you can steer the call agent into, you know, the annoying questions he needs to ask you uh, to pursue you into getting uh, a subscription. Um, or think of insurance companies where you, as a customer, dial in, uh, you have a specific question, you uh, give your customer details, and then they transfer you to the next person. Um, the technology behind transferring the call, but also transferring your data uh, is something I, I worked on. Um, and that sort of matched it with the server-based computing because, you know, as still is today, uh, server-based computing allows all this technology to run centrally uh, independent of where uh, the agent is actually located. Um, so those, those two paths sort of met there and uh, I jumped from telephony uh, to server-based computing as, you know, ultimately it was a very much more interesting technology. Very good. And uh, how far? So obviously, when we met, you were working at Pepperbyte. So how, how far in your story along are we before you got to consulting? So I think I, I jumped uh, around the millennium change. Uh, so one of the last things I did in my telephony career was um, witness the uh, millennium change. So the millennium bug that we were all afraid of. Um, we had some computer applications connected to telephony such as call recording systems and reporting. And actually, as we found out, you know, as many applications, these were using two bytes to store uh, the millennium year. Um, so again, you know, with programming skills, I was able to, to assist there. So I wrote programs um, to change uh, the year uh, from two digits to four, 
uh, and fill this up for the existing records. But I think that was one of the last activities I did there. And then um, I think it was early 2001 or late 2000, um, I jumped to a, um, um, a technology provider active in healthcare, um, where our main business was providing data center services to um, healthcare institutions. Oh, wow. So very, very, very early onset of kind of outsourcing slash cloud computing for data for healthcare. At that time, we still called it ASP. Um, so we designed uh, a couple of services there, ranging from uh, remote exchange to actually a, a full desktop system that we called at that time um, customer name desktop publishing system uh, combined with published applications uh, that we would um, pass through with um, what we now call Zenapp. Um, so this was a way to publish a desktop that was independent, could be used by many customers, and still have an opportunity to have customer-specific applications in those desktops. Um, we, we would probably call it DAS right now. Uh, at the time, we called it ASP, Application Service Providing. Um, so it's probably, you know, the whole DAS thing um, uh, from the start. Very good. Okay. And you, you, ha- you hopped over to, into consulting at that point, did you? Oh. Yeah, so I, I was uh, initially active in uh, the system administrations department, and from there on uh, went active to do design and projects uh, for the organization. Um, so, you know, whenever we onboarded a new customer, we would usually redesign their current environment, do a migration. Uh, so I was active in designing how um, the new organ- um, architecture would look like and how we could migrate and then, you know, with it, together with the team, do the actual migration and hand it over to the department that would, um, you know, run the customer from there on. Very good, very good, okay. So, I mean, obviously now you've you, you've moved on and, and that's that's kind of how, how you ended up in IT. So, I mean, throughout the, throughout the um, throughout your, your, your travels and your journeys, do you, do you felt that the, the programming background really helped your, your consultancy um, role as you went forward? Yeah, throughout the day, um, in, in everything I've done, I'm, I may be a little lazy um, by nature. So whenever I need to do things many times, uh, my first uh, behavior is try to automate it, um, which, you know, today with PowerShell uh, becomes much easier and more powerful. Uh, back in the day, it was sometimes, you know, automating command line tools uh, or even automating GUIs uh, to get stuff done. And that's something I still believe in today very heavily. Automation uh, makes sure that you do it right. It, you know, prevents you from making typos in your basic program. Uh, It prevents you from uh, making typos when importing large uh, amounts of users in Active Directory. So I think that, you know, programming skills or scripting skills uh, are very important for, for any consultant, especially today. I couldn't agree with you more. I, think, I believe it was Helga Klein who said, um, "What was it? Every every good admin is a lazy admin, but not all lazy admins are good admins. In the sense that you know, a, a lazy admin will try to off it or will try to um, to 
to automate it as much as possible. And I hear you uh, in in a sense that I mean, back in those days, it was very difficult to automate things. I mean, you were you were dealing with console based applications. A lot of applications did not have command line accessibility. PowerShell was was a was a thing of of dreams for administrators back in those days. So yeah, now we hear you. And I suppose from a consultancy point of view as well, just you know, with a little bit of a developer background, it it really helps you close that that gap. I mean, most software solutions will get you to about eighty five to ninety percent of the customer requirements, but a little bit of knowledge and development can really help close that last ten percent, if that makes sense. So you can you can deliver something that's both custom to the customer, makes them very very happy because you've gone to the next level, and you know it, it leaves them with a tangible solution that 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 they wanted originally. So you know I absolutely hear you about that one. So I mean obviously throughout the throughout your journey you've been you've been both programming and hacking and and providing some uh, well software hacking software engineering. Um, You've been providing these for, for your customers. Can you can you tell us like uh, your favorite software hack you've ever done when you're out working with people, or you know the the, the funniest solution that you've ever had to put together for a customer? Um, well, several things come to mind, but the thing that comes to mind mostly is a delegated management console that I wrote. Um, so uh, later on in my career, I worked for uh, a big company in the Netherlands that primarily does outsourcing. And I was working at a project department where we would, um, you know, uh, update their infrastructure, usually including some kind of uh, SBC at that time. And this customer insisted that they uh, would know the admin credentials, you know, as as most service providers, uh, you know, sometimes the customer wants something quickly. Uh, you respond nicely within their SLA, but, you know, they just want it faster. So that was their motivation to get uh, admin credentials. And from time to time, they would mess up. Um, I had a less nice word in my mind, but maybe that's not suitable for a podcast. Uh, <laughs> they would mess up the complete environment. You know, best example at some point, um, they they had deleted the complete OU with all the accounts in it. And I'll you know, be honest, I used to work in Dell computers, and I did that. Uh, I accidentally deleted France off the face of the planet, and when it happens. It is a so embarrassing, and b you panic so hard you actually think you're going to have a heart attack. <laughs> but it, it, we've all had those whoopsie moments working as administrators or working with customers where you, you really do screw the pooch. And just for anybody who's listening, if you ever do find yourself in that situation, no matter how much you think it'd be beneficial if you just try to fix it yourself, put your hands up, let people know straight away, and then try to fix the problem because there is nothing worse than than finding out the issue that somebody already knows about and is trying to fix it and cover it up but anyway i digress <laughs> that's just a personal pet hate of mine i i have a perfect example of what were you, you were just saying Andy. um back in the days of windows nt uh there was something called wins which was the predecessor of dns in in windows and windows kept a central database with all the uh, name resolution records and if you wanted to delete such a record, uh, there were two buttons in the Wins console. One was delete, and the other one was delete owner. Then when you deleted uh, a name record with the delete button, it would not be deleted right away. It would rather be tombstoned. And you know, after some time, when all the servers had replicated, it would actually disappear. So what happened a lot is that people clicked the delete button, didn't go away. So you know, what do you do? Let's try the other button. Um, delete owner actually meant delete all the records that this server owns, which would then replicate to all the other servers. So you would effectively wipe out your whole name resolution database. Um, 
this has happened to us, uh, I think, two times by an external who pressed the button, panicked, uh, put on his jacket and said, well, good night, guys. See you tomorrow. And then left us with um, the mess to clean up. Again, I had a less nice word in mind. <laughs> um, so one of the things I did using a tool called Resource Hacker, uh, which I think many people know, um, I opened the Wins console and I disabled the uh, delete owner button. I made a copy of the console where I left that button in, um, so that sort of made it harder to to mess it up. Very good. I remember Resource Hacker. It's kind of become less of a less of a prevalent uh, tool these days because I mean most people are writing applications in .NET and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, my first this, my first um, experience with uh, Resource Hacker was actually Login Consultants. They recommended it for Terminal Services 2000 and upwards, where you could hack out. Um, you could hack out some of the buttons from task managers. Task manager. Yeah, that's yep. it. So you could you could remove the lists of users and you could remove them from doing certain things like launching new processes and then, you know, using reflection from um from the uh, image file execution options in the registry, you could force that task manager to be opened instead. And that that that, that registry key itself, um not many people know it exists, but it is so handy to be able to, you know, force Windows to use a different process if I, I still use that hack to this day. Um, for for other solutions, not just that one. But anyway, now I'm dragging you away off topic. So you're, you were talking about your management console, <laughs> right? So you know, to, to your point, they deleted a whole OU with everything in it. Um, they you know they report on the incident. Um, our Active Directory is broken. Please fix it ASAP. Um, hurry, hurry, hurry. Um, you know, we immediately noticed that this OU was gone. We could see in the event logging, you know, that it was deleted. Um, so we just rang them, you know. D- did you by any chance delete an OU? Well, no, we didn't. Well, did you maybe delete it at this specific time uh, from that machine? Oh, yeah, maybe we did. <laughs> um, so we were able to restore this. Um, that got me thinking, right? Like, you know, there were several problems behind it. I mean, they were working with the generic administrator account as opposed to personal admin accounts. Um, customer was having an admin account. Uh, but contractually, uh, they needed certain permissions that we couldn't really um, uh, divide with run as or specific permissions to admin accounts. Um, so with programming skills, I thought, wow, you know what? Let, let's write a specific management console that uses a, a admin entitled account without them knowing um, and only allow certain functionality. So expose only what we allow them to do. Um, and that was sort of built out, so I included Active Directory functions without the option to delete an OU. Uh, would ask you for confirmation if you actually delete stuff, um, administrate printers, uh, event logs, and ultimately they said, hey, we, we have this Senap farm uh, and we have this RDS farm, and we want this functionality to be in the console as well because then we have a single pane of glass um, to, to administrate the whole environment. You know, just using the public APIs, I started to implement things like list all the sessions, uh, list all the session properties, list all the users. Um, and then I started noticing that many functionality was actually lacking from the API. So, for instance, if you wanted to know uh, how long a user was idle, um, simply wasn't there. If you wanted to shadow, um, this actually didn't work with run as. And... You know, that annoyed me because I had this perfect console. It was only missing this one specific feature. Um, And that's what really got me into things like IDA Pro and reversing. 
So via a forum, I met other people uh, who were already reversing and using IDA Pro. Um, they had no clue what Zenapp was or uh, what a session was, but they understood reversing. And together, uh, we managed to discover uh, some of these APIs. And ultimately, it led me to full disclosure of the hidden APIs. And actually, there was some cool stuff you could do, like shadow uh, session one from session two to session three, uh, which is never been possible with official tools um, or connect uh, two sessions to each other without you being in the middleman. Um, so, you know, that led to some interesting um, possibilities. Oh, uh, I can, I can imagine. I can imagine. And it uh, kind of leads into, 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 into my next question. I mean, Saslab X is not a library that many people would know about, but it's a library that I know intimately because it's just so bloody powerful. And um, Saslab X is, is a library that you wrote quite some time ago. And it, it, is, it, is it safe to say it came from this original uh, console idea? Uh, not directly, but you know, uh, one one thing leads to another, right? This reversing game, it's it's quite a learning curve, but you know, once you're on track, it it sort of goes faster and faster. Like uh, you know, there's a snowball that's running off a hill. Uh, it's getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster. Um, you know, so just like many things, uh, people read one of my blogs, then came to me like, hey, we have this particular issue. We can no longer simulate Control Delete in Windows Vista. Um, and I started looking for a solution, and that ultimately led to um, a possibility to do uh, the simulation of control delete, which was used successfully by uh, some of the vendors in the area of you know remote computing. Uh, so think like uh, tools that can uh, remote your screen uh, for support sessions, uh, but also to you know well-known vendors in the industry that create solutions for VDI and SBC. Very good. So, I mean, for anybody who's unfamiliar with Sasselbex, the reason I was absolutely blown away by it was you can literally, with this library, unlock other user sessions. Absolutely. In terminal yeah. services. So, if a user is a user session on a terminal server is sitting there, control alt delete screen, waiting for a password. With Sasselbex, you can unlock that session and allow the session to resume. Absolutely. And, you know, when many people first hear this, they think, wow, that, that's, that's a security breach. Um, actually, if you look at you know what, for instance, Microsoft considers a security breach, it's not um, because I coded in a requirement to have system privileges, which means you know if you already have system privileges, you you are not restricted in any way. Um, so you know the scenarios for this are endless, right? From you know remote support when the user is gone uh, to remote control situations where you need to uh, take over an unattended machine. Um, to to other uh, applications, and you know, obviously, um, you yourself have found some nice applications in uh, in ThinkKiosk for this. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, it's uh, it was it was a godsend, and you know, Saslabex is a uh, is just one of those libraries that you know, it, it, there's there's so much potential and power behind it. So yeah, it, it, to the listeners, if you have a chance to have a look at it, it it's um it's very very clever. Remco's written one or two little blog posts on it, and uh, yeah, they're good. Anyway, um, that that's that. So I mean, uh, with 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 You've written, you've, you know, you've you've been developer. You've been you've been a, a, a consultant for for server based computing and for for VDI. Um, you know, you mentioned that you kind of discovered EUC as part of the phones. But why do you think you stuck out EUC? Like, what what about terminal services and VDI really made you stick around? 
It's a very good question. I, I think there's there's two things in in primary. One is you know this is about the user, so you 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 have direct control over the experience that you know the end user of what you're designing is experiencing. Is it good or is it bad? As opposed to you know for instance a, a database server or or uh, or a telephone exchange where. This is much less visible. So for me, the end user part in end user computing is definitely something um, you know that that interests me. Um, the second thing being you know the the sort of coolness around the technology that you can actually remote a screen, uh, that you can hop from one device to another. Um, you know then the advanced technologies that came in to redirect and accelerate um, videos. Um, you know to accelerate with GPUs and this technology seems to never stop. It, it gets better every year, and every year we think, you know, this is the end of features we can add, and this is the year that RDS is going to be better than ZenApp, and then, you know, it, something new is invented, um, and it gets better and better, and I think that's what keeps me hooked on this technology. It's an interesting because we we ask we ask a lot of our our EUC guys you know why do they stay in that industry because I mean IT guys tend to float from place to place to place and uh, yeah I think that everybody has kind of come back with a similar one you know the the remoting of a desktop is cool it, like it really is cool the fact that you can be sitting somewhere and you can access something somewhere else. Does that make sense? I mean, from the moment you see Dameware or you see Remote PC or you see Terminal Services or or ZenApp or you know uh, Horizon, the, the minute you see technology like that, it is pretty cool. So interestingly, I was asked at my son's school to uh, present about IT uh, because you know they're preparing uh, the students for you know looking at what what would you like to do in the future, and they really wanted to have someone for IT. Um, so I accepted this invitation. I was thinking like, okay, what am I going to tell 13 and 14 year olds about, you know, remote desktops and, and virtualization? I mean, this subject is not going to stick, right? And, you know, one of the things we do at Atlantis, obviously, is remote, we make these desktops high performing, good user experience. Um, so at some point I asked the kids in the classroom, like, you know, if, if you start 10 applications at your home computer, what's going to happen? And they had great, great stories about that. Fire coming out, smoke, uh, the thing would blow up, um, user experience would be horrible. Um, you know, and then I showed them like, hey, this is what we can do. And I showed them, you know, launch of 10 applications concurrently. Um, and this all happened uh, in two and a half seconds. And one of the applications I was launching was a 3D Spider-Man movie in Windows Media Player. Um, and then the kids said, wow, so this means that, you know, I get the Spider-Man movie in two seconds. I don't have to download it first. What you're doing is very cool. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. Uh, that's not all of the story, Remco. Be honest. I remember you telling me this story. And I think originally wasn't it your wife who was supposed to go in and tell stories about fashion? <laughs> uh, I, sh I should have told this, right? So, uh, indeed, uh, m my wife first made the promise to tell something uh, at school. Um, you know, then they planned it in. It turned out to be a date where she uh, couldn't make it. Um, so I asked, you know, we, we promised that we would tell something. Can I do it instead? I know you're looking for IT people. Uh, so school was very happy with it. They just forgot one minor little detail, and that was to change the people, the audience. So, you know, I arrive in a classroom with 15 girls, and, and one boy, that's my son, 
uh, <laughs> and they were all excited, waiting like, oh, because my wife, she works for um, a children's clothing brand. And, you know, they, they expected children's clothing. Uh, so they were really excited, like, oh, all these nice baby clothes and pink stuff. And, and then this IT guy walks in, right? And he starts to talk about virtual desktops. Um, so it was a tough crowd, but the Spider-Man movie uh, really, uh, really hooked him. And then when I showed, you know, that you can take the Spider-Man movie and when you're watching it, you can flip it over to your iPad. And then when your parents kick you off the iPad, you can flip it over to your phone and continue watching the movie. Um, and then they thought it was really cool. I'm still not sure if they really want to work in IT, but at <laughs> least they love the remoting part. So kind of kind of keeping things moving on here. So you've done quite a bit of pen testing. So can you tell us you kind of how you got into it and and what do you penetration test? So you know one of the things I was always interested in is how stuff works, and this can range quite a lot from you know um, when I'm in my car, I I put in a DVD, and at five kilometers an hour the thing says you can't watch it at five. So, you know, start reversing this. How does it work? Patch it, you know, increase the speed. Um, obviously, you, you can use this the other way around, right? So, you know, if, if you've looked around this software, uh, you're quite easy in finding where software uh, has been badly designed or badly programmed or where there's simply weak security in place. Um, you know, there's great value in telling companies, you know, I've, I've looked at your software. I've identified an issue uh, you know, uh, I would like to advise you on, on how to improve this. Um, sometimes companies are very open for this. They, they're very happy that you report this. Uh, they're very happy to work with you. Uh, sometimes companies are a bit ignorant and they think, uh, who is this Remco guy? Uh, what's he telling me? My program is telling me it's solid. So, you know, uh, go into ignore mode. Uh, then sometimes I tend to write a blog post about it. Uh, <laughs> I've also had a few blog posts that I was having ready uh, with some very cool information in all my excitement when I found something new and then you know Andrew advises me well Remco you know it's it's maybe fair to contact the vendor first um, so I'm, I'm very happy in a few occasions that Andrew actually um, said that to me um, yeah, sometimes it's best not to anger the, 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 the hand that feeds you, if that makes sense. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Because I know we, we, you, uh, I demoed a couple of the, the applications that you had reverse engineered or you highlighted security bugs and I know those vendors jumped all over you. So is that where that kind of came from? You'd, you'd highlight an issue in a product and you'd contact the vendor and then all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're, you're a software penetration tester. So, you know, sometimes this, this happens for the good, right? A vendor reads your blog post and he says, okay, you seem like a knowledgeable guy. We'd like to work with you on, on improving our software. Um, some vendors are, are not interested. Um, you know, it, it, it really depends on the vendor. And I regard a vendor that's reaching out as the good guys, right? They're interested in improving their software. I mean, I'm a programmer, I make mistakes. Um, you know, five years ago, the thoughts around security were quite different from today. And, you know, if you're a programmer or a consultant, we all know the, um, the amount of pressure a project manager can put on you. Like, you know, it needs to be finished tomorrow. Uh, yeah, but it's not perfect yet. Well, then let it not be perfect, just have it be finished. And this is how weaknesses enter in, 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 in software, right? And if a vendor is actually reaching out and says, well, you know, help, help us improve it, um, I think that's a very good thing. 
Oh, it is absolutely, and you've you've saved my, my my own kind of mistakes as I was learning to develop as well. I had a I had a number of situations where I I said, okay, I finally found a solution to this problem. If I do this, this, and this, and you straight away turn around and go, no, that's that's uh, that's that's open to exploitation in this way, or no, that could be shattered, or no. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a very interesting one when you or when you have um, somebody that you can run these kind of ideas by who who will who has been down this rabbit hole before and can uh, and kind of can kind of move on with that so yeah IT security or at least application security was was a completely unknown to me and I can see the value in myself reversing is 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 just simply fun you know finding out how stuff works and sometimes uh, you know you bang your head against the wall you simply can't understand why the thing you're looking for uh, you know the needle in the haystack cannot be found and then when you found it it's such a, a, a eureka moment where you think yeah, I found it, and then you know you immediately want to pull it all over Twitter. Um, and as Andy said, you know I've learned that that's not always the best approach. So you know even though you're excited, the worst thing about actually um, reversing something, or uh, even worse when you do a pen test, you can't tell anyone. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. There's, there's, there, there, there have been those moments in the past as well where you, you just you want to help or the vendor won't help, but you know that if you put it out there, you're going to get yourself in trouble. So yeah, it's true. So Remco, you've recently you know moved over to Atlantis Computing, and you know that's more kind of on on the storage side. So kind of tell us, you know, what was your motivation to to go over to Atlantis? You know, I think like like most people that have done VDI projects, I, I've learned that, you know, storage in a VDI project can be, um, you know, the problem in your project. Um, like many people, uh, you know, in the early days of VDI, I, I made the same mistakes that we all did. Um, so, you know, then your project starts rolling. Uh, you do a test with the first 50 or 100 users. Everybody's happy. Performance is good probably because you sized the storage behind it for, you know, the ultimate end number of users that you were expecting. And then as you scale up, you notice like, you know, this storage is a problem. I'm seeing much more IOPS than I was expecting. Um, stuff isn't really working well. You get under pressure. Um, you know, do we need to invest in more storage? And then I came uh, in, into contact with the Atlantis solution, and I immediately liked the approach of, you know, a smart piece of software as opposed to, uh, you know, throwing more horsepower at it. Uh, so if you want to look at it from that side, you could look at Atlantis being uh, the Tesla, uh, if you compare it to automotive, opposed to buying, you know, more horsepower cars that keep getting more expensive. Um, so, you know, after seeing that this technology um, uh, really solved my issues, and after drinking many beers with Jim Moyle um, at things like E2E, uh, you know, I became more and more impressed with the Atlantis technology and finally leading uh, to me joining Atlantis, um, you know, as I want to push this technology to, to other people. Um, I also think it was a very interesting moment to join Atlantis because, you know, the original Atlantis solution was a VDI-specific solution. And at the time of me joining, we had just released Atlantis USX, uh, which is a solution that can not only optimize and accelerate your VDI bits, but also a general server workloads, think databases, think Exchange. Um, I also have a lot of history with uh, Exchange and SQL databases. Um, so I think, you know, this was a very good moment to join the company uh, maybe also look out for, uh, you know, doing not only end-user computing, 
uh, but also looking at other uh, technologies. Um, well, at this point in time, end-user computing is still what I enjoy most and what I like best. Um, but it's always fun, you know, to to stay in touch with other technologies that are of interest, uh, stay up to speed there. Uh, and I think the only thing you can do that is by being involved in actual projects. You, I do not learn this from, you know, reading blogs or reading um, course material or following some kind of, you know, Microsoft or vendor course. Uh, I, I learn by doing it, and you know, by being active on this side, um, you know, I can do it. I can do it both. Very good. I mean, obviously, the time you joined storage was, as you said, white hot because I mean, the, the industry that we worked in, while ZenApp and the server-based computing workloads were, were were lighter on the storage side, you still had to prep for it and you still had to be ready. But yeah, VDI was was a real killer, you know, and then. Um, Obviously, the technology that Atlantis had in in the previous Ilio products it translated straight into hyperconvergence, and as that exploded, you guys had the the perfect engine under the hood, so to speak, to to convert and move forward with. So, uh, yeah, no, it was it was a very clever move on your part. I I did I did wonder when you first made the move uh, as to why, but yeah, no, it was it was the right decision at the right time, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think you know I I like uh, companies that are not too big. Uh, because they give you a, a better opportunity, uh, you know, to control what you do. Um, so, you know, besides the official part of my role, I am involved in doing other things at Atlantis, uh, such as a SCOM management pack that I wrote um, and a PowerShell module I'm currently working on. And I think, again, this is like, you know, applied knowledge. So, you know, if you come from the field, I think you have a better understanding of what customers are, are looking for. Uh, I think you, Andrew, are, are one of the best examples of it. I mean, you always have such great ideas, uh, always thinking of, you know, this this solution that customers are looking for that's not on the market today. And then I'm thinking about ThinkKiosk. I'm thinking about ThreatLocker. You know, and I think the real value is not about being uh, this crazy good developer of being this awesome consultant uh, or, you know, the, the, uh, the best guys know how to combine um, – these knowledge areas. Oh, no, yeah, no, I get that. I get that. I suppose. So, I mean, that actually leads us into our next question really, really well, you know. So, I mean, obviously you said that your, your development background really helps with your, with your consulting background. But, I mean, for, for any of those out there who, who, you know, have an interest in development or, or maybe starting off their consulting career, I mean, how, how, how would you recommend they learn more about kind of software reverse engineering and development going forward? Where, where should they start? So if you're looking purely at development, I, I would say that getting to script, uh, you know, maybe with PowerShell would be an awesome start as, you know, there is an awesome possibility, endless possibility almost. Um, it's, it's you know, sort of a first step towards the .NET framework, which at least in Windows development is, you know, the, the, uh, the most common language. Uh, and I think an easy language to learn like C Sharp, hey. which was... <laughs> which was based on uh, things like uh, like Pascal. It's written by the same authors of the Delphi uh, programming I like. Um, so I think, you know, if you're looking into, I, I want to get into scripting and developing, uh, maybe not as a developer per se, but, you know, to ease life as a consultant. Um, I think that would be a very good start. Um, you know, if you want to get in, involved in reverse engineering, it can sometimes, you know, start very simple with a hex editor or just by looking at, you know, uh, hidden command line switches, um, you know, so just take the executable, uh, look at 
uh, a hex editor and see if you if you spot something like backslash argument that you didn't know and see what it does. Don't be afraid to experiment. Uh, use things like process monitor. Um, you know, and from there on, uh, go on the internet, Google, um, read my blogs, obviously. Um, I think you have a good head start. Very good. Okay, and I suppose we actually did a we did a presentation at E2E this year uh, on kind of getting started on that and my own journey because I mean obviously I, I started off with a, a very small knowledge of, of development with my with my one year of basic programming <laughs> and uh, yeah as as I kind of progressed down that rabbit hole you can literally start today with tools like Process Monitor and Redshot and you know even assistant or assistant tools like Strings.exe to pull out tools we really should get that blog post or that. That presentation up online. Uh, maybe maybe I'll do that as part of the end of this uh, podcast. But how never. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's some solid advice anyway. I appreciate that. Um, so anyway, as we as we kind of close things down, um, there's one question we love to ask our our guests. Uh, I, you know, away from your away from your day job, away from EUC, and away from Atlantis and programming and and kind of uh, software reengineering. Well, what 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 technology or market space are you watching at the moment? What technology gets you really excited that that that's emerging or is away from your day job? Oh, so, so many things. You know, I um, I I think you know Windows Desktop will will be around for some time, but. You know, uh, large parts of it will be replaced by mobile. So I definitely think mobile and, you know, learning how to do what we do today for other platforms than Windows is something of interest. Uh, but I have a broad interest. I, mean, I also like to program uh, my car, um, you know, looking at other possibilities that nobody knew about or, uh, you know, things that you can buy but are actually already in the car. Um, so automotive is of interest as well. Um, but if I read tomorrow how I can enhance uh, the working of my television, uh, you know, TV is being smart today, um, then that's something that catches my interest as well. So I think in a broader sense, it would be more in, in you know, how stuff works and, you know, Windows and, and, and SBC and VDI is, you know, what what it is today, what it is tomorrow. Um, maybe just what gets on my path. I don't know. Um, I'm interested myself. It's funny you mentioned the car because um, I, I think you are the only BMW driver on the planet who has the Citrix receiver installed on his dashboard. Isn't that right? Yep, it, it, works, <laughs> it works perfectly. <laughs> I wonder, does it turn off after five miles an hour? <laughs> it, it did. It did originally. <laughs> Um, but you can program that away. You can change it to FF, and then um, it stops at 255 kilometers. But one has to go to Germany to verify the correctness of such a patch. Okay. Well, uh, we'll wait for our next conference, and I'm not driving with you. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, buddy. Um, I'm going to hand over now to Jerry and um, to, to close down the podcast. Uh, Remco, it, it's been a it's been a real pleasure, and thank you very much for joining us. Before we close down, I just wanted to uh, thank our uh, sponsors uh, without these guys we would not exist so to FS Logics to Liquidware Labs and to Controlup thank you guys very much for sponsoring us yes and uh, thank you again to Remco for joining us today um, I have to admit you guys are much more further in program than I am you know I'm more of the stage where Remco talked about um, about the scripting and, and that kind of stuff and the PowerShell and those things where where you guys are more of the, the hardcore developers than I am. So I, I found myself listening a lot during this uh, podcast. And um, for those of you guys starting out and, and wondering, 
Um, this was a very good podcast to listen to to get that information, and hopefully we'll see that blog post on your guys' presentation from E to E. Um, looking forward to that as well. So uh, thank you again to Remco. Um, thank you for listening to the Frontline Chatter podcast, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.